All right. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Suffer Map. My name is Tyler. And this is Matthew. And uh, we are here with another episode. We're going to be talking about um, another kind of big topic that we think relates very politically to the world that we live in now. Um, but before we jump into that topic, there was something that we mentioned in our last episode before the episodes that we just aired, uh, the episodes with our friend Nathaniel, two episodes before that, we were talking about um, the work or how how conservatives how conservatives find it very difficult to think sociologically, right? And we were talking about the problem of, say, evil in society and how for a lot of people, evil as a concept seems to be this thing that arises very mysteriously. There isn't an explanation, for example, say how sin arises in other people or how people do bad things. There's just kind of like this very parasitic entity that like works mysteriously like 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 there's this demon that is working behind the scenes and we can't really talk about what that demon is doing only that it is doing something and it causes people to do evil things and we wanted to leave the conversation there because we felt like it was a great opportunity to bring it up here um because in some ways it relates to what we'll be talking about in the main portion of our episode so matthew i kind of want to pose this question to you like why why is it do you think that in some, especially some religious circles, evil and sin is something that mysteriously and inexplicably appears and rises up in people. I, I think that question is one of the most important questions that we can be asking in how to move forward in uh, dialoguing with others and building consensus as a community. I think that there's something unique happening with this concept of sin. Because in some sense, it's kind of marking out a void of knowledge. Like sin is sort of the label that you can use to talk about a gap where you don't know about something. So for instance, sin is a concept. It kind of, in a way, obscures human motivation because it because you don't really know like how sin arises necessarily. You can just kind of use it to... Uh, as this black box to where, oh, I don't know why that person acted in an evil way. So I can just, but I can have recourse to this concept of sin and I can just take it and I can fill the gap with this concept. And so really it just kind of denotes a limit of what we don't know. And I think that on the one hand, that's really unhelpful because it disincentivizes trying to dig deeper about the behavior and what happened there. Because I think that Sin emphasizes rebellion, but I feel like rebellion as a motivation, it it doesn't explain the majority of human behavior. Um, right. Like if you actually look- Adequately. Look, yeah. It's not that it doesn't explain anything about human behavior, but I think it explains like well less than half of human yeah. behavior. You know? Absolutely. And so on the one hand, it, it obscures- human behavior and makes it harder to inquire into the subtleties and nuance of human decision-making. On the other hand, it is, it does denote this mysterious X that is hard to get around that. Um, I think, and this is relevant to what I'm working on in my thesis on knowledge Yep, where there's theories of evil that are built around ignorance and it's like, okay, people do bad things because they're ignorant of the truth or they're ignorant of the good. Um, so if they knew better, they would do better. But theories like Christianity say, no, that doesn't work because you can still know the good and do the bad anyways, or somebody can be fully aware of the harm that something's doing for them and nonetheless continue to do it. Right. So, and we've talked about this, but, this ability of human beings to continue doing things they know are bad for them and uh, because they enjoy them. We've talked about this, I think, a few weeks ago. Um, the, the jouissance, the enjoyment of doing things that hurt yourself. Um, this ability of human beings to continue doing things that are bad for them is, I think, for me, the, one of the most interesting problems in life. And because it represents the problem of how do we actually help others? How do we help hmm. ourselves? And how do we help others? Because the real obstacle in helping other people is usually the other person. 
Now, there can definitely be obstacles in ourselves, but the I think that anybody who works in a role where they need to help other human beings, be it customer support, be it therapy, be it a doctor, be it a teacher, I think that the universal experience is that at a certain point, you hit up against a wall where the real obstacle in the relationship is just the other person themselves. Right. And, and we kind of get into this with our episode on existentialism. Yes. Yes. Like it, this is one of the biggest problems in relating with other people is at a certain point, they're not you. So you can't control them and you run up against like, they are doing something that is actively against their own good, but I cannot make them make the right decision. You know? <laughs> right. And, uh, there's this issue, uh, uh, immediate connection, not to cut you off, but I think that there is this immediate connection that I saw between what we were talking about two, two or three episode, episodes ago with sociological thinking and the problem of sin, which is that oftentimes people that are uh, that need to place clear blame on observable agents are oftentimes doing so as a way to affirm, kind of blindly affirm the status quo. And it creates what you call this cynicism this like this systemic cynicism of the status quo and i think this is precisely what is happening when we when oftentimes when people talk about sin is that they're they're speaking a, a communal language they're speaking the language of a society oftentimes as a way of distancing the community from the outsider um a great example of this is say how a lot of conservative christians deal with the homeless or deal with drug addicts, or deal with the people that are kind of outside the Victorian or Puritan sensibilities, the more bourgeois sensibilities of those within the insider group, right? Um, there's this language, this kind of totality of language placed upon them of sin, evil, that is not very well explained. It doesn't actually explain what is happening. It doesn't explain, for example, why someone chooses things like drug addiction or why someone is homeless but it's used as an opportunity of to push away or to like explain away the other and the problems that the other brings up does that make sense you're hitting on something really interesting about language and that is that and you know that you're actually you've internalized Wittgenstein very well here right where you're realizing that words like sin are a language game precisely that don't necessarily do what they purport to say. For instance, the sin doesn't, uh, I would say, I don't think it actually identifies an object that exists out there, but it does perform a function. It's doing something. And what you're pointing out is that um, in some contexts, that language is creating an insider and an outsider group. Um, it, it, you know, it's, it's a way of dividing up the world. It's also a way of, like I said earlier, filling in a gap where, um, this other person, their motivations, their problems, their needs, their issues are a gap. It, it, you, you don't really know them. So you have to fill it in with something. Well, you can fill it in with this concept sin, um, where it's like, oh, bad things are happening to this person. So. Um, they must have done X, Y, or Z, you know, right. and it, it's a way of filling in that gap in understanding. So words can do a lot of different things. It, they just aren't always doing what they purport to do. And Wittgenstein's pointing this out, as you know, that a lot of, a lot of times we think words are picking out objects in the world, but in reality, they're, they're not doing that. They're, they're doing something, but they're not picking out objects in the world. Right. This is a, a major frustration, I think, in the mental health world where you know and and i'm sure you've had this experience i know i've had this experience too many times to count where i say hey friend i haven't been able to sleep well for the past week and a half because i've been overcome with anxiety or i am depressed right like i feel like ending my life yada 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 the response is oftentimes well it must be a demon or have you been you're under spiritual oppression or have you been praying? Yada, 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 right? They're kind of these very banal terms and diagnoses. Well, they're not diagnoses at all. They're kind of like attempts to 
diagnose the problem without actually addressing the problem at all. I think what you're what you're seeing there is a disagreement about what are the relevant levers to pull to create different outcomes. Oh yeah, so okay. You believe in different causal chains of events. Like for instance, you know, if you can't sleep and your theory of the human being is that human beings sleep because they require a certain uh, balance of chemicals in their brain, then you would say, "Oh, you should work on the balance of chemicals in your brain." And you can change that by using X pill. But if your theory of the human being is fundamentally uh, that um, emotions come from the soul and that they are fundamentally determined by spiritual, non-physical factors, then the diagnosis is going to reflect the set of causes. So it's all about what is your theory of the set of causes, and that's going to determine where you go and look for solutions. So you'd say that these two, would you say that these two things that we're talking about, the diagnosis set, and then just kind of like the general conversation of sin or evil are two separate things? No, I think that they're connected because sin is a concept that is used diagnostically in Christianity. Um, right. So, it, it, you know, if somebody is having issues um, the first question that's going to be asked is, okay, like, where are you sinning in your life? You know, because sin is seen as the root of, uh, of the issue in your life. Now, I think that there's something to be said for that of, of, okay, if you are having issues in your life, we should begin to identify where the rot is, where the unhealth is. And I think that in Christianity, the word for unhealth and rot is sin. And there's some ambiguities there because to, to some extent, like sin very much, like I said, has this overtone of rebellion and of personal will. Whereas I think that a lot of rot and unhealth in human lives is much more complicated than that. Right. I, I agree with you that there is a dimension in talking about sin and unhealth that is very valuable. I don't think it's used that way very often. But I think that there is a way in which we can perhaps retrieve something valuable from that language. Um, yeah, I and... also think that it's a it's a matter of, uh, it, well, at least in my mind, it's a matter of knowing what to say, when to say it. You know, I mean, like, I mean, since the problem with the that we're talking about is actually not, in my mind, is not at all a problem with using the word sin to describe some sort of phenomena. And the problem is, is that it becomes an overarching theme. Like it becomes the only word that we use to describe any number of phenomena that we don't understand, right? To talk about like this gap, right? To, like to fill in any number of gaps in our understanding or to, to kind of assign blame to any number of activities that we don't understand or don't want to understand, right? Um, but we don't need to use it that way. I think that there's this... The thing that you may be feeling frustration from is that there's not a lot of work done to establish the effectiveness of the practices that get diagnosed. So for instance, you know, if it's like, if say you're, you know, struggling with looking at pornography and the advice that you get is just to apply more willpower or just to pray more or... Right. You know, it, it, what, what, what commonly happens is that there is, an, there is a suggestion to just apply more, that you, haven't, you just haven't done enough of the things that you already know to do, you right. know? And something that Zizek points out is that, um, I don't, this is not Zizek, it's Ivan Illich um, in his book, Deschooling Society. He says that one of the, one of the, hallmarks of the experts language is that usually when things aren't working according to how they say they should work, they recommend just a further application of what they've already mentioned. So in his instance, he's talking about schooling and he's saying, well, oh, you know, when schools get low test scores, they say, oh, it, we just need more money and we need more schooling. And so instead of stopping to say, are what, are what, instead of stopping 
and asking, is what we're doing working? They say, oh, we must not be doing enough because there's the assumption that their method, that their practice is what will work. There's an assumption of the effectiveness. And then if it's not working, they say, oh, well, then we just need to do more of what we're already doing. Instead of stopping to ask if what they're doing actually is going to be effective. And I think that, you know, if you're struggling with sleeping, there uh, there are ways to test um, what changes in behavior can produce better sleep outcomes. Like there's, you can actually test that. Um, and I don't think that that's reducing the human being to a machine. It's saying that you shouldn't hand out drugs that haven't been tested. And in, in the spiritual realm or in a physical realm either. And I think that that is a great uh, segue into the main topic of conversation for this episode, which is, shall we say, the problem of expertise. And we're back. This week we are talking about the problem of expertise especially how experts are perceived in the world um, and perhaps how we should perceive experts. Matthew, how about you introduce the topic for us? Yeah, this this topic I really think has come to the forefront in our society since Trump was elected in 2016. Absolutely. Because, and it kind of swirls around this concept of fake news. Um, and and that, that word fake news is actually really interesting because it, indicates a conflict that is really much more complex than it uh, gives across. You know, it, on, on the face of it, it's like, oh, there's there's news and then there's fake news. But I think that what this, uh, what the conversation about fake news has really opened up is the idea that there really is a spectrum, really, that, that there's not news and fake news, but that all news is to some extent fake news. Because fake the the concept of fake news is essentially this idea that um content is produced for people who want that content but when i describe it that way then it just sounds like content like when when you when you realize that the new york times is fake news as well as fox news you realize that fake news just is news and that there's varying levels of um, there's varying levels of uh, of trust that's involved. So who's drawing on which trusted sources, and who is playing a, a certain language game? So, for instance, the New York Times is playing a certain language game. Their audience has a set of principles and institutions that they trust, and so those are legitimate sources that they can appeal to in support of their arguments. Now, do I find, um, you know, do I think that there are institutions out there that are much more trustworthy than say, um, Sean Hannity or Tucker Carlson? I do. I think that there are institutions out there and and the New York times appeals to them to, to back up their claims. Um, but the, but the bottom line is that their audience already trusts a certain set of institutions and norms and they expect the New York Times to play by that those rules, but that's no different than the Fox News content um, consumer, who also has their own set of norms, their own set of institutions that they trust, and Fox News understands that. So it's it, they're playing different language games, and what's actually going on here is a battle of authority. It's about trust and about institutions. So uh, I said a lot there. I feel like there's a lot to unpack. I kind of want to get your perspective on how did uh, how did this come up for you, and um, where do you want to take this conversation? Yeah, I uh, all of that was great. I think that I initially brought this topic up to you because I had received a post from someone, um, kind of in it was like a reaction to the COVID. Um, like the kind of the public reaction towards COVID and the conversation that was happening at that time around vaccinations and especially, you know, I don't know how many of our listeners like connected to this world, but in my world, 
there are a shocking amount of people that think the effectiveness of vaccines is is up for a significant amount of debate. Not saying that there isn't any debate there at all, but I, I think that there's just like this constant conversation about um, whether or not vaccinations are effective scientifically, yada, yada, yada. Um, and so all these topics were inflamed during COVID, uh, not just because of the way in which Americans relate to problems like COVID, but I think in particular the subculture that I'm a part of really took, didn't take it in stride at all, right? So it was a big problem. And so I received this post from someone uh, where the, it was just like a graphic that said this. So I, I want to quote it. It says, the most educated people in the world are the most indoctrinated. The ones that cling onto science like a religion, the most unscientific. It's the people that have climbed the highest in the system that are the most enslaved. Our journey to freedom starts when we unlearn it all. Un unlearn, in case I didn't pronounce that correctly. Um, it's it's very I'm interesting. I'm so conflicted about this. This yes. is what I find so interesting. Precisely, because there are so many things here that are I think are absurd, but also there's a lot here that is compelling. Uh, I think that on one hand, it is clear that what is, you know, what is at work here, like the intention behind this is some sort of like anti-intellectualism. It's this like uh, very, it's attempting to like create a, a, a system where responsibility to people that are smarter than you doesn't exist, right? So there's, there's, there's an abdication of responsibility here. Ab absolutely. Um, and the intention here is not something that I respect um, or think is good, but there it is true that I think that like, you know, bureaucrats are a great example of people that have climbed the highest in a system and are also thus the most enslaved. But anyway, that's the, the, that's kind of like what brought me to the conversation here. I want to get your thoughts on that quote. Yeah, I really want to push back actually what you, what you said, especially about an abdication of responsibility. Okay. Um, because what's what I find intriguing is I think that the person who critiques experts would actually say the opposite. They're saying, no, I'm actually taking responsibility for what I know and the choices that I make. And the people who rely on experts are actually abdicating their responsibility. I think that's the argument. Right. I think the actual argument goes, um, I am going to heroically take responsibility for my own choices instead of being the sheep who just believes what the authorities tells them. Yeah, there's like a mythology on either side, right? There's the mythology of trusting experts where you say, you create this mythology where you say, well, I'm like not good enough. I'm not smart enough to know everything. And so I'm going to trust in these valued leaders, these shepherds to make all the decisions for me. And that's like the humble thing to do, right? So you like kind of praise yourself based on your humility. And then the other side is I'm going to courageously and heroically fight against injustices that I see. And I'm going to find the truth out for myself. It's kind of like that dynamic between like the Roman Catholic and the Protestant. And what I think this begins to reveal is that there is fundamentally a tribalism that's going on that like human beings just don't escape. We're, we're, just, we're not so enlightened right. that we're, that we've escaped this, uh, this tribalism of uh, you just perfectly demonstrated how you could spin the narrative either way, but notice how the narrative gets spun based on which community you're a part of, which group, precisely, which language game are you playing? And now if you are somebody who fundamentally trusts the government and nonprofit and social institutions, then you are going to be the type of person who is going to find what those folks say to be trustworthy and to act and to want to act on it. But if you don't trust those people, you're part of an alternative community, then you are going to be able, you're going to be able to spin a narrative about yourself that makes sense from within your community. And I think fundamentally, the problem here is that our public institutions are not necessarily worthy of our trust anymore. Yes. I, and that is, okay, that's like the problem that we're trying to talk about. But it's also huge. <laughs> so I think that like, let me just react to that really quickly. Because uh, I think you're right. I think it's, on one hand, it's very easy. It's becoming easier and easier to blindly trust social institutions but on the other hand it's also 
they've also become like demonstrably more corrupt. But I think that there's like complications there because on one hand, if we're going to talk about politics, right, having a conversation about like the political community is a lot different than having a conversation conversation about the scientific community, right? Like I think that like on one hand, the political community is more obviously corrupted, right? Like very clearly have an agenda that is not commensurate with the, say, the agenda of America as a whole, if that even exists, right? Like um, most, you know, most politicians don't actually represent their constituents the way they say they do, as, as an example, right? And so there's a sense there in which you don't trust them. But the problem with the scientific community is is a lot different because they're not really representing anyone. You know, like a scientist, you know, like a neurologist or a biologist is not representing anyone except maybe his maybe his school or his faculty or the industry that he's a part of, right? And so the way, but I I think that there are legitimate reasons why an institution like, say, a scientific institution also has inherent problems of trustworthiness. I, I want to get your thoughts on that. Well, let me complicate it for you because I think again, that you, yes, that, that's what <laughs> I, that's what more. I like to do. Let's just keep like following the complications down into the their depths. That's like yes, that's that's what I like to do. Um, the code; those communities are not as tightly separated as you would think, and I think that's part of what people who are critiquing expertise are noticing. For instance, scientists. Where does their money come from? Yeah, from the government. It comes from the government. So it basically, who gets money to work on their projects is determined on what the government thinks is worth spending money on. And the, the incentives in science, the way they're currently set up, are I need to propose a hypothesis that offers this clear social benefit. I then need to deliver on that hypothesis and then I need to spin up another hypothesis that will get me more funding to keep working on it. So the incentives are structured for results rather than open-ended exploration. So what we end up doing is you have a community of experts who their incentives are structured to where they are supposed to work on projects that the government will give them money for and they will produce results in the near term that are socially beneficial. But when you think about those that incentive structure, you begin to realize that maybe that is not going to produce the kind of information or quote unquote truth that we're looking for. D- does that make sense? Totally. I mean, I think that there's. I I, I wonder if Foucault has something to say about this. Um, oh, does I'm, he? I no no no. I, well, let me rephrase that. I'm sure that he does. Uh, but um, let, let me try and rephrase this. I think I think that. Something that I would say as someone who has read a little bit of Foucault is that as a, say, a large group has a massive amount of representation or gains a large amount of representation and gains a lot of, say, political and social power, their agenda, even if it is a good agenda, oftentimes must necessarily trample on people that we oftentimes don't think about, right? So, so like, you know, the housing market oftentimes doesn't have to worry too much about the homeless, the crisis of homelessness in the United States, as an example, right? And I think that this is a great example of expertise, like, say, scientific expertise, is that it's not just a question of, like, hey, what are we accomplishing here? Because I think that there are great things that sci- sci- the scientific community has accomplished, obviously, right? Um Vax, you know, vaccinations would be a great example, but oftentimes what we don't talk about is what have we trampled in our quest to provide immediate solutions. I think that's a great way of putting it, um, because every choice to pursue something in, it inherit it includes an exclusion of what will not be pursued, and every method of going about exploration it opens you up and makes you more liable to certain types of mistakes. I think that that, like I I once heard a great quote. I wish I could, um, I wish I knew who said it, but I was reading this. I read a great quote that said an interesting way to analyze political systems would be to ask what are the mistakes they are most likely to make. 
And I was so blown away by that question. And we could turn, we could turn it on uh, our, you know, the scientific community, for instance, their incentive structure. What does their incentive structure, what type of mistakes does it make them more liable to make? That's an excellent question. I mean, the most immediate that I think about, which is I think the fear that a lot of like anti-vaxxers have, and maybe this is me being, I might be being too charitable here, but I think that the fear is that vaccinations are too utilitarian, that the greater good is too much of a of an emphasis and it ignores the downsides and the defects that may occur. You know, like say for a mother giving her child vaccinations, the fear of a vaccination uh, killing her child or like causing some like strange defect in her child at their most vulnerable stage of their life is a much more real concern for the mother than it is for the scientific community, period. I mean, full, full stop, right? Um, does, does that kind of make sense? Does that address what you're getting at? It, it does. I think that what we overlook in discussions of things like the good or the greater good is that more evil has been committed in the name of good than any other name. I mean, this right. is something that atheists point out is that uh, more evil has been done in the name of God than in uh, the name of atheism. And that's true, um, partially because atheism is a philosophy hasn't been around that long actually uh, but right. part of but the point is that evil always has to be disguised in under the guise of the greater good i mean it's how you can motivate people to do things like i mean nazism was ostensibly for the good of the german people and it was always it was framed in terms of actualizing human flourishing and the german people's potential so that's the thing is so much like if you are looking for where evil is being disguised, a good place to look is the rhetoric in your society, which is promoting ostensibly the greater good. Yeah, this is maybe kind of a side note, because this also, I, I might as well say this because we talked about this in our intro a little bit, right? But I think that this is a huge problem when, you know, yet another evangelical pastor turns out to be a pedophile, you know, or turns out to be a uh you know, some sort of deviant, uh, he'll have an army of, you know, armchair therapists and armchair theologians talking about what good he did for the community and what good he did for the, you know, you know, Christians will come forward and say, well, he really helped me with my faith as a way of kind of like whitewashing what he's done. This is a perfect example of how quickly the good, even after it has so blatantly been uh, mismanaged, right? Or how blatantly the good has been trampled. Even even in those situations, we will still try and, and kind of retain and try and cover up the evil by the language of the good. We, we need our communal thought structures to kind of hold together to have any sort of sanity, you know? And I think that in situations like that, where your world is crashing down a little bit, there's a huge incentive to try to make things have some coherence. Um, and I think that that's like the whole fake news conversation is fundamentally around that each community has a set of um, coherencies, things that like a narrative structure that makes the world hold together for them. And what we're finding is just that the old narratives that worked are not working anymore. And new narratives are springing up to challenge it. And the thing is, the new narratives are springing up because there's a felt need for them. The, the old narratives, the old narratives have inadequacies and gaps. And I think that like this, this is pointed out from both the left and the right. I mean, the right is going to say, look at liberals who talk about how they love people, but they, they, um, support abortion and the killing of millions of babies every year. And then liberals will say, look at our government and how they say that all men are created free and equal, but look at how our society was built on the backs of slaves. And what happens is because the dominant narrative has all of these inadequacies and gaps and cracks that it covers up, now these new narratives spring up in the cracks that are real. They are real cracks. And so I think that we need to view the alternative narratives that spring up 
as symptoms of the problems with the narrative. Yeah, this is this is something that I try and because and and you know me, I tend to distance myself pretty strongly from the conservative side. Um, but I've never, and this is definitely a conversation for another episode. But I'll, I'll touch on it now. You know, I've I've always been extremely well. I mean, I'll I'll just come out and say it. I, I think that like liberals have their own system of mythologies, right? You'll never hear a a liberal kind of reasoning quietly their way to being anti-racist. They'll say, I'm anti-racist because I care about people, right? Um, and then they kind of like look at the other side as like these like, as like like a Sasquatch has just appeared in the room, right? Like how could you possibly believe any of X, Y, Z, right? Um, I guess the place where we start, even though I oftentimes disagree with the people that they disagree with as well, right? I do. Um, I, I think the place that you start though is to say that, well, the things that they believe in are real to them, right? You kind of begin maybe in an existentialist place, right? Where you say the experience that they are having is a legitimate experience. Why is their experience legitimate? If you don't believe that it's right, if you believe they're wrong, then you need to explain to me why that gap exists. And I'm sure there's a good explanation for why that gap exists, right? There is a gap between why someone would commit or believe in something that you find objectively wrong, and yet it is still real and legitimate to them. And this gets back to our discussion of sin. I think that both on the left and the right, there is a word or a concept that fills in that gap of misunderstanding, where at a certain point, the liberal cannot understand the conservative's perspective. And so they give up trying and they decide that it must be some sin. It must be racism. It must be sexism. It must be homophobia. It must be Islamophobia. It must be xenophobia. These words they stand in for, I cannot understand your behavior, so I have to give it this label in order to be able to talk about it at all. It, it's it's a fundamental admission of, I cannot understand your behavior. You must simply be motivated by irrational hatred. And at that point, when both sides have reached the point where the only explanation they have for the other side's behavior is irrational hatred, you have completely broken down the possibility of dialogue happening at all. You bring up this example a few episodes back where you said that um, you, you gave the example of, you know, uh, a young middle-class white person going into a liberal academy and coming out, you know, a newly, a, a, a newborn, uh, born anew liberal uh, with liberal sensibilities. And, you know, he or she goes up to, you know, they go up to their uh, father who is like a, you know, just like classic conservative and begins arguing with them and telling them how they're wrong on X, Y, and Z, right? Um, and you pointed out how both of them are are able to enact their own fantasy and how they're able to kind of see their fantasies confirmed. You know, the father is able to have every stereotype in the world of, you know, a classic snowflake liberal attacking him. Like he's able to have all of those fantasies confirmed for him. And his daughter's able to do the exact same thing in the opposite, right? Her father's able to fit this role of the classic, angry, racist, out-of-touch conservative, right? And I think both of those things are happening there. And I think that, okay, to bring it back to the conversation about expertise, I think there are two fundamental directions uh, that I see this conversation going. One is the anthropological side with things that I call like the will to ignorance and the way that people talk about um, or re rather, the reasons why people believe the things that they believe, right? Not just what they believe, but why they believe the things that they believe. And the second is kind of like an institutional problem, uh, or maybe like a societal or communal problem, right? The problem of the community, which is a much more along the lines of a favorite among us, you and I, which is Nassim Nicholas Taleb, and how he kind of critiques things more on an institutional level. I mean, he talks about individuals, but he's talking about them on like, say, the financial institution. So... I wanted to see what your thoughts were on that and which direction you'd like to go into first. Yeah, I, I love both of those directions. I, I wanted to, I would like to talk about Taleb, but I wanted to briefly mention that this might turn into a longer conversation, but you said the reasons why people believe something. And I've sort of fundamentally come to believe that people don't have reasons for believing things, but there are things that make it possible to believe things. Yes. So for yep. me, the question is more about what makes it possible for this person to believe this rather than, 
um, what are the reasons why this person believes this? I think that, and to extend that, I think I was just chatting with my friend Dylan in the car about this, right? Because he was asking about the episode that we were about to record about an hour ago. And I was kind of giving him my thoughts and like the things that I was bouncing around in my head. And the way that I explained this why versus what distinction that I make um, is uh, based on like an anthropological distinction that I make that I learned from people like James K.A. Smith, right? Where there's this idea that like knowledge exists and truth exists out there. It's like a very platonic idea of like truth or knowledge exists out in the world somewhere. And humans are like these empty receptacles for knowledge. And, and so you start out as like this ignorant being and then you slowly ramp up your knowledge as you encounter more truth. You become more and more knowledgeable. And so there's this idea about ignorance. Say if we interact with some ignorant person, some like racist person, there's like this very neoliberal idea that like somehow if you just present this person with like enough of the input, if you just give them more of the input, then they will somehow become less ignorant. But I actually don't think that that's the case at all. I think that's actually a terrible anthropology. I think that there are actually a lot more complicated reasons why people believe what they believe and how they believe what they believe, right? I think that a better conversation would be about incentives, right? Um, and most importantly, I think that it takes work to be quote-unquote ignorant. I don't think that being ignorant is just some default stage, but takes effort, you know? You have to... Uh, I mentioned uh ta Coates, right? He mentions how a lot of middle-class people who want to deny racism in the United States, he says they wish to pull their country over their head like a blanket. That takes effort, you know? Anyway, wanted to get your thoughts on that. Yeah, there's so many connections there. One, James K. A. Smith was also very influential in my own intellectual journey when I read his Desiring the Kingdom back oh, in- So uh, good, dude. I think, uh, senior year of high school. And that was really what began to kind of crack open the door on this idea that human beings are not fundamentally knowledge creatures, that they're not fundamentally motivated by reasons and that they actually operate at this deeper level of desire. This is why I'm so interested in psychoanalysis. Um, but James was showing that human beings, they first begin with desires and that they then move to ideas that validate or confirm those desires. And so what we have to actually focus on is what are the mechanisms and tools of producing and controlling and changing desire? Now, his pull point is that liturgy is one of uh, the most important ways to work on desires. And I think that that's absolutely true. But the kind of key insight there is that you have to begin asking of like, what is the desire that is going on here? What is um, the enjoyment? Now, desire and enjoyment are different in psychoanalysis. Um, They're closely related. But the question is, what is the desire and what is the enjoyment that is at play in this situation? Not what are the reasons for this person's behavior? And when you begin to take that perspective, things, uh, the world becomes a little more alien and a little more familiar. Because you start to see the same patterns cropping up, but you begin to see how the words and reasons that are coming out of people's mouths are, uh, they're not the, they don't hold as much sway as you actually think. They, they begin to look like byproducts and symptoms of, of something else. It's almost like a, just another form of acting. Um, anyways, uh, the, the, the connection there actually to Taleb is really unique because you mentioned incentives. And I think that Taleb, he he presents such an interesting case because he clearly is a quote-unquote expert in the sense that he can talk at a very high intellectual level um, and can talk with other experts. But I think that what makes Taleb unique is his emphasis on uh, skin in the game. And this takes us to experts and institutions because institutions are inherently designed to protect people from the consequences of their actions. And I think that like experts as people are, um, they, they are supposed to be insulated from uh, the consequences of what they say. 
So this is Taleb's point about not having skin in the game. If you don't have skin in the game, you can't develop a tight hypothesis loop of develop hypothesis, test it, you immediately see what's wrong with it, and then you develop a new hypothesis. Institutions are built to generate truths and to name things and to accumulate social trust and capital. They're not built to um, carry out that really tight hypothesis loop of confirmation. And so what happens is you have the experts who fill up these institutions. They can go on saying things that are either not true, partially true, helpful in one way, unhelpful in another. And they never have, because they never have to experience the consequences of what they're saying, they never experience the incentive to change what they're saying. So it's like the professor who already has a tenure track position telling their young graduate student to go and to keep on, uh, keep on trucking, keep on doing what they're doing. And um, eventually they're going to have a tenure track position too, like the professor, but the professor never has to bear the consequences of whether that is true or not, because the professor already has a tenure track position. They will never be through what that young graduate student is doing right now. They'll never be through that again. And if that graduate student fails because the system is completely broken, that will never affect the professor in any way. I agree with you. I think that there's one of the things that we oftentimes forget. So let's go back to, say, the mythologies of the liberal. The liberal says they can't understand why someone could not trust the general consensus of the scientific community, right? But what they're ignoring is that actually the problem is a lot more complex than that, right? Because of the one of the reasons that you're bringing up is because institutions like scientists are oftentimes disconnected from the consequences of their policies, right? So if they're enacting policies and they're enacting practices that they don't have, it, it you know it's the problem with like the California governor, right? Governor of California is in, enacting all of these policies. Uh, enforced upon businesses and churches that are basically like, you know, uh, eviscerating local business and small business in California, but then acts with utter impunity elsewhere. You know, I mean, is caught all over the place without a mask on, with not even even trying to put up the appearance of following his own mandates. Right. The same thing happens in, say, the scientific community and in experts across the world. It's concerning that, and this is why people kind of make fun of people who appeal to science as kind of a religion, because in reality, science doesn't prescribe policies. Like you can't go from a scientific discovery directly to a corresponding policy about how a society should act in response to that scientific discovery. Right. Scientific discoveries are discoveries in one domain. And the, and the crafting and implementation of government policy is another domain. And domain expertise in one area does not mean that you have domain expertise in another area. So there's not a direct movement from this thing X is true about COVID-19 vaccine to therefore the, company, uh, the community should do X. There's not a direct movement there. Now, in some cases, there may be... Uh, there may be like a really clear indicators. Um, you know, the other options by comparison may look very stupid. You know, that's that's the best case scenario is that it's really clear that we should do X because some other X is true. But as a society, we are extremely complicated. We have a specific set of hangups. We have specific financial and economic incentives. We have policies that differ from state to state from county to county, from city to city, from neighborhood to neighborhood, from borough to borough, our society is so complex that it's not clear that you can just move from scientific insight A to policy B. Yeah, I mean, like, even where I live, you know, the culture of someone who lives in midtown Sacramento is going to differ wildly than, like, anyone who lives in the suburbs, period. And if you live on the grid... The way in which you enact your life is going to be different than someone in the suburbs, and that's going to require 
different policies and different ways that because there are different lives, there are also going to have to be different solutions to different problems, right? So because people's lives are so different from place to place, I think that there's this experience of this expert doesn't know me, doesn't know my community, doesn't know our incentives, um, and they they don't have any connection or um, consequence to their choices. Like, you know, this expert can say, we need to close down all businesses um, for two weeks in order to, and for the record, I am neither like viciously for or against the quarantines that happened. I'm honestly still working on my own views. Um, I tried to abide by it as best I could. But I think that what's frustrating is that the expert isn't the person who uh, whose livelihood is destroyed because of their decision. Right. Like the, when the expert is grappling with the question of, okay, I know that X is, you know, I have a reasonable amount of confidence that X is true of COVID-19 vaccine. Now, what should we do in our community? The expert is not grappling with, and what will this do to the small business owners in my city? Because they're not a small business owner. They don't know what it's like to go to the bank and to pitch their business and take out a loan and put all of their life into building something and then having that legally wiped out. And even if they did ask those questions, even if they did say, hey, well, let's care about the small business owner. They And this is the beautiful point that I got from um, Skin in the Game by Taleb, which it, is that, okay, because you are not connected to the problems on the ground that the small business owner has because you are not a small business owner you don't know how to fix the problems of small business you're not connected to their problems and so even if you have the best intentions and you say well let's work with you know let's make sure that we don't crush and destroy uh small business in the united states even if you're asking that question it doesn't mean that you have the tools to properly answer it yeah i wonder about like i mean there's the there's that huge stimulus bill that, that came out and it had provisions for small businesses, but I don't know if anybody understands what those provisions really were or if anybody is able to measure the good that they did or uh, who would be competent to even be able to craft a plan that could help small businesses in all states, in all places. Like, like why is it the federal government's job? Like, how is the federal government based in Washington, D.C. at all competent to help save a small business in Bozeman, Montana. How does that make any sense? Right. It doesn't. I mean, and I mean, there are ways that you solve that. I mean, there's ways that you get around the problem of expertise, say in, uh, at the coffee shop that I used to work at a really easy way to solve problems, uh, that resulted in say a PR scandal, but were institutional problems long before that PR scandal ever happened. Right. Uh, one of the ways that you can solve that is you leave important cafe-related uh, decisions to people who are in charge of the cafe, people whose lives are going to change based upon how policies in the cafe change, right? And so, like, you can enact policies like that. Instead of having, say, some CEO who maybe visits the shop once every three months making policies, you should be giving it to, say, the most immediate manager of the shop that is there every day that is working on the floor. Okay, and and that's just like a microcosm of what should be hap- should maybe be happening um, across the United States, right? Like if you have a problem that you don't have the tools to solve, you should give that problem to someone who does have the tools to solve it, right? I love that analogy because that's the skin in the game analogy. And you're 100% right that what we're seeing is not some new issue, but instead it is uh, the stress that the pandemic put on our body politic is just revealing the cracks that were already there, the rot that was already in the system. And I love the analogy that actually you think about COVID-19 itself of how COVID isn't actually what kills people, but usually it's complications due to pre-existing conditions. Right. And the true, the same is true of our society. Our society will be killed by COVID not because of COVID, but because of our pre-existing conditions, our pre-existing conditions of inept government systems, of misaligned 
incentives for social institutions. Massive and industrial of, monopolies. Yes, of, of um, capitalists sending jobs overseas so that we um, want our, our supply chains get screwed up when everybody has to shut down. There aren't jobs for people to get back to um, when the economy quote-unquote reopens. Uh, we end up with the, the semiconductor chip shortage because we don't make any of our own semiconductors, which is crazy. Like when you begin to think about like COVID is such, in a way COVID is this incredible blessing because it so starkly puts in relief our society's um, foolish choices and the consequences of those choices. It gives us a chance to stare our problems directly in the face, but I'm just not confident we're going to be able to do it. I'm not either, and I think that this problem of expertise is one of those things. I think what we've revealed here is that, you know, say the conservative, you know, like the crazy anti-vax, QAnon, conspiracy theorist, uh, anti-expertise person is dealing with the same, in, in some ways, the same problem as the liberal that just kind of very blindly accepts whatever an expert tells him or her, right? Um, they're dealing with the same problem in that, uh, you know, well, they're both dealing with mythologies that don't actually address the root issue. They need this this fantasy narrative to hold their lives together. And I think that expertise just denotes who are the figures in your mythology that you trust and who have the power to name things and the power to produce the truth. Experts are producers of truth, but not all producers of truth are trusted. If you think that the higher education system produces the type of people who are likely to produce truth, then their certifications will mean something to you. If you have no faith in the higher education system, their certifications will not be worth the paper they're printed on. Right. And this is, um, I, I hear a lot of Foucault what you're saying, right? That expertise is a structure of power. That power, part of the work of power is to produce truth and to produce, that the one of the singular works of power is to produce knowledge and truth. This is what makes Foucault so fascinating and why I think that he is an essential supplement to Marx, because Marx is talking about the economic production of value. And Foucault comes along and says, okay, but there are other economic actors who also produce products, but they're not producing, um, they're not producing products in the same way. What are they producing? They're producing truth. They're producing social trust. And he begins to look at the production of institutions. He sees how institutions are economic actors who produce a product. They produce goods and services. And how do they do that? Well, they have a very specific, uh, they have a specific process where you first have experts who become well entrenched and uh, who are excellent at practicing a certain language game. And then you certify those experts and then they begin to employ their techniques. Um, you know, you think about the you think about the therapist. Foucault is so interested in therapy because there's something really unique about the relationship of you go into the room with the therapist and you sort of submitted yourself to their authority in a way. Even if they're very unassuming, even if they're like, "Hey, we're just here to talk," in a sense, you just by being there have admitted you have a problem and that they have the tools to help you. And when you talk with them, they begin to construct a diagnosis so that they, based on their knowledge or, you know, the DSM-5, they produce a description of your identity, of what you are, of what you have, and how you can be normal again, how you could not have that. And so my theory really is that institutions produce identities and at the heart of those, those identities is something that you lack. When you think about an institution, an institution always presumes that those it serves possess some sort of lack. For instance, the New York Times produces a product because it assumes that people lack information. They lack um, expertise. So 
like an educational system, produces an identity of the student. It produces the student's identity by saying you lack education, which is stand-in for knowledge. You lack um, know-how about the world and about society. And what's interesting is that by producing the reality of the student who lacks education, the educational institution has created its, um, its need in you. And now you say, oh, I need education. So where do you go get that? You go get it from the educational institution. It, it's this, it's the same way that a company produces lack in other people in order to sell their product. It's the same way Coke makes you feel inadequate or like you're missing out on something because you don't have this incredible experience. The consumer ideologies produce a, an identity for you where you are lacking in something and then they present themselves as that which can fill that lack. Baudrillard is great here, right? He says he says that the effort of consumer seduction is what he calls it. The consumer seduction is look but don't touch. Uh, and this is my reading of him. This is not a direct quote, uh, but it's from his book Seduction. And it's kind of like a synthesis between Seduction and his book uh, Consumer Society. That consumer narratives and mythologies or seductions are efforts of lack where you tell someone that you're able to look but you cannot touch until you transform yourself right um or rather more importantly the desire itself is the effort of consumerism anyway um i think that so what is very interesting here in this problem of uh expertise is how we've revealed that say for example politically liberals and conservatives are playing very similar games but I think that there is a difficulty that I find in, um, say, things that occur in, say, conspiracy theories or, say, in the public reaction towards the wearing of masks um, in, in response to COVID. Um, many people, especially in our circle, thought think that getting the vaccine and for example wearing masks is ridiculous right and an absurd idea but these are also things that have been disseminated from experts right and so in this case i am trusting the experts so i guess my question is and maybe this is a bigger conversation that we don't have time for now where do we draw the line i really don't have an answer for that right now i i think that people who don't trust experts can usually point to reasons why they don't find them trustworthy. I think that what's interesting about like, say saying I'm not going to wear a mask because uh, just because, you know, Anthony Fauci tells me to is that there is a rationality to that choice. And the choice there is that uh, because I don't trust these people on uh, because I don't trust them, I don't even necessarily have to disagree with the specific thing they're telling me. Like, for instance, one could rationally agree that it one should wear a mask in this situation. And nonetheless, because you don't trust the person who's telling you to do it, you can say, I'm not going to do this thing because I don't want to give you that power over me. Hmm. So, like, what's fundamentally happening is there's a, there's a struggle for power going on there are communities of people who feel that um, institutions are attempting to exercise levels of power over them that they're not willing to concede. And it's not about the rational argumentation about masks. You could agree that one should wear masks and nonetheless say, I refuse to let the government exercise that level of control over me, or I refuse to let an unelected public official decide that that's the best course of action and have government um, politicians just fall in line and agree with him and enforce it. I think that like, that's a very rational decision to make. Now I'm not sure that um, people are thinking it through that way and how people arrive at those decisions can be very, um, it's, you know, very unthinking and communally motivated, but, but I want to focus on the internal logic 
of the decision of how it could make sense in, in a particular um, set of coordinates. And I think that that's kind of where we should leave it. Um, we're right at our limit here. But I think that there's a lot of really juicy things that we merely mentioned in this episode that we'll definitely be bringing up in the intro to a future episode. Um, any final thoughts, Matthew? No, I really enjoyed this conversation. I feel like it hits on a lot of things I've been thinking about. And there's a lot of seeds of future conversation here. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think that it touched on a lot of, especially for me, there is a lot of political stuff that has been swirling around in my head that I've been unable to like really put a lot of words to until I had the opportunity to have it in a conversation like this. So it's been very, very helpful for me to kind of reframe and, and reframe a lot of the problems that I've been struggling with over the last, you know, year and a half. So it's been really good. We'll definitely have to bring up some more of this stuff in future conversations. Absolutely. Have a great day, everyone. Thank you so much for listening. We really appreciate your support. Have a great day. 